You're listening to Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to those who lived in the Mesa Verde region hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. This season, we've learned all about Mesa Verde National Park's designation as the 100th International Dark Sky Park. We also learned that this designation does more than just preserve the natural beauty of Earth's dark night skies. This designation also preserves the deep cultural connection that humans have had with the cosmos and all the elements of the skyscape since essentially the beginning of human consciousness. And in the last episode, we heard about the ways that ancestral Pueblo people and their descendants have revered the sun's movements throughout the skies for thousands of years. Tracking the cycles of the sun and living by the cycles of the sun is something that people all over the world have done, and certainly the ancestral Pueblan people did this. This is Dr. Ellingson. Hi, I'm Erica Ellingson. I'm a professor in the Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences at the University of Colorado. And along with galaxies, cosmology, and the Big Bang, I'm very interested in the history of astronomy and how people from all over the world over all time have looked at the sky and what they've been thinking about the sky. And as Dr. Ellingson mentioned, the ancestral Pueblo people were greatly attuned to the yearly cycles of the sun. But there is another significant object that travels through our skies. Certainly, all people across the earth notice the moon as it goes through its phases every month, and they make meaning of this. Um, One of the most spectacular astronomical ideas that I've seen expressed by the ancestral Pueblan people is at Chimney Rock National Monument. If you've driven on Highway 160 in Colorado, between Pagosa Springs and Durango, you may have noticed a unique rock formation high above the road to the south. Chimney Rock, which is now a U.S. national monument, is an ancestral Pueblan site. It's actually one of the most distant outlying communities for the Chaco Canyon culture. Inhabited between roughly 900 and 1150 CE, this village is older than the cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde and the people had likely moved on before the height of occupation at Mesa Verde. And it was really a a small city or certainly a concentration of people that existed during the heyday of Chaco Canyon as well. Today, Chimney Rock is one of the few national monuments managed by the Forest Service. It lies within the San Juan National Forest, the San Juan National Forest Archaeological Area, and the Southern Ute Reservation. It's very different in many ways from Chaco Canyon. Instead of being in a canyon in a very dry landscape, Chimney Rock is actually a fin of rock that rises up from a very fertile river valley. This area, known as Chaco Canyon, is located in northwestern New Mexico, about 100 miles directly south of Durango, Colorado. And it was the cultural epicenter for the ancestral Pueblo people. Today, it is protected by the National Park Service as Chaco Culture National Historical Park. I think in terms of thinking about the Chaco Canyon culture, Chaco was the center of a real phenomenon, of a very large, very interconnected culture with great houses and communities that were connected with Chaco in all directions throughout the Four Corners. Chimney Rock was one of the most distant miles up to the northeast and in a somewhat less hostile environment, actually, than you might find from the environment right around Chaco Canyon. Hostile here refers to the desert landscape of Chaco's canyons, compared to the forested high desert around Chimney Rock. And with this area being so far from that cultural epicenter as one of the most distant outliers, it could seem kind of isolated. However, 
In terms of isolated, you could say, yes, they were a longer walk to the center of the culture at Chaco Canyon. But of course, they had the river valley, they had, you know, their sustenance came locally. And so I think to say, are you isolated from the things that you need to live? Of course, they were not. Are you isolated from the places that you need to make your world meaningful? No, they were not. But they were at the edges of this larger cultural phenomenon that was centered at Chaco Canyon. And just like we heard in the previous episode about the Sun Dagger at Chaco being a special and separate place high above the populated villages in the area, the same seems to be true for Chimney Rock. And so we believe that people mostly lived in the river valley. But if you go up onto Chimney Rock, there is a very narrow kind of inaccessible mesa where people built a kiva and a great house with many rooms up there on the rock. This is, again, a spectacular place in nature. If you go up there, and I hope you will, it is open to the public, what you'll see is that next to the Pueblo, there is a fin of rock and a chimney of rock. These are chimney rock itself, and the other is what's called companion rock. From this standpoint, chimney rock is about 315 feet or 96 meters tall. And if you stand on a very narrow peninsula of land, by the great house and by the kiva that's there, you can look between them and look into a particular direction of the sky. Looks like two fingers held up into the sky. And we think that that alignment from the kiva through the two rocks into the sky, this has something to do with how the ancestral Pueblans observed the moon. It also turns out that the alignment of that mesa and of those two rocks points to a place that is only inhabited in the sky by the moon, really in a seasonal cycle that takes 18 years to go through. Now, the sun will not shine through this, so it's not like a Stonehenge phenomenon or a sun dagger phenomenon. It's really a moon phenomenon. And the ancestral Pueblans built a kiva and a great house and a set of buildings that we believe had ceremonial use up on that mesa in that place, in that viewshed, where you would need to be to see the phenomenon of that moon. This is tracking a cycle that is 18 years, where the moon will be in this place in the sky and be able to view from that mesa and that through the, the, through the rocks. This cycle is actually more precisely something like 18.6 years. And tracking a cycle of 18.6 years takes a lot of careful and precise work and patience, and attention. So what did this cycle mean to the ancestral Pueblo people? The meaning of this is, well, we really don't know, but it is a cycle that they lived under the sky, they knew the cycles of the moon so well, they were able to observe it, and they built a place where they could see it and see it again in its own cycle. Unlike the cycles of the solstice and equinox of the sun throughout the year, or even the phases of the moon, this 18-year lunar cycle is difficult to even recognize. If you're anything like me, you may not have even heard of this phenomenon before. It's what is called the lunar standstill. The, the lunar standstill cycle is a sort of a subtle cycle. It comes from the tilt of the moon's orbit relative to the Earth's orbit. So there's a little five degree tilt all of the planets and the sun appear to us on the earth to travel in the same line. 
This is because the solar system exists in the same plane as we all rotate around the sun. However, the moon's orbit around the Earth is tilted just a little bit, only about five degrees. But what this means is that the moon can move its position relative to the sun, sometimes five degrees north, sometimes five degrees south. And this means that while the sun is bounded to go back and forth north to south on its track, occasionally the moon can go five degrees further north or five degrees further south than the sun. So we can talk about the moon transgressing the places the sun is able to be. And this causes the position of the moon along our horizon to change over time. Similar to how the sun rises farther north and farther south on the horizon, causing the change of our seasons. It's just that this moon cycle is much, much slower. And in order for the alignment to take place at Chimney Rock, there has to be a few kind of perfect conditions. For everything to line up properly, for the moon to push all the way far enough north, as it turns out, to be seen through the rocks at Chimney Rock, you have to have the season to be correct and also to have that hinge between the moon's tilt and the Earth's tilt to also be oriented in the same direction. All of these things move in sort of a, a, a common cycle, and those lineups only happen every 18 years. And so to see the moon rise between the chimneys, you need to have a full moon. It needs to be close to the winter solstice, and it has to be on a cycle that rotates once around every 18 years. And if this is the first you're hearing of the lunar sandstill, you're definitely not alone. Even within the scientific community, this isn't a cycle that's talked about very often. I can say that I know many astronomers who are not really aware of the lunar standstill cycle. It is a relatively small cycle. You'd have to look carefully for it. And of course, you know, our ancestral people living under the sky, they did look at the sky very carefully. And of course, they did notice it. The meaning of this, though, to track an 18-year cycle and to try to understand what it might mean to people, that's something that we don't really understand. There are a lot of different places around the world where people have postulated, well, maybe this building, maybe these sets of stones, maybe these artifacts are, are referring to a lunar standstill cycle. And some of them maybe look like it's possible. Other ones, maybe we're reading too much into it. Okay, so we have this 18.6-year cycle that's difficult to even track, needs these very specific conditions to even happen, and we don't understand why people may have even been tracking it. So what makes astronomers even think that that's what the people were really doing at Chimney Rock? With Chimney Rock, one of the most, I think, important factors for thinking that this is a place that is marking the lunar standstill is that when you look at the dates at which the great houses were built, what you see through dendrochronology, through tree ring dating, is that these houses were refurbished on an 18-year cycle as well. And so when the lunar standstill cycle happened, what we saw was a burst of renovation and rebuilding of these houses. And so there is also some external information that, yes, people did inhabit the Great House, the Kivas, at that time, and were industrious at that time at repairing and making these places livable. So that is, for me, is one of the best pieces of information we have to say, yes, they really did track the lunar standstill 
at this place at Chimney Rock. But again, why they did that, what it meant to them, clearly it meant quite a bit for them to go to all this trouble of creating these buildings and working in this pretty inaccessible spot. But exactly what it is, we don't know. Although there is not as much strong evidence in archaeological terms for this, for the ancestral Puebloan people, certainly the Pueblo people have stories, have ideas, have ways of talking about and looking at and finding meaning in the moon as well. While the ancestral Pueblo people and other indigenous ancestors may have moved on from the Mesa Verde and Chaco areas, their traditions and ways of viewing and revering the cosmos have been passed down from generation to generation and are observed and practiced still today by their descendants. Most of our ceremonies are observed in the full moon, but it actually starts with the new moon. That is day one, and all of our fasting, all of our our preparation starts at the the new moon. And if if you become a part of the religious hierarchy or religious societies, that the new moon is the day that preparation is starting for the observance of the full moon. This is Octavius. My name is Octavius Seotua. I'm from Zuni with the uh, Zuni Cultural Resource Advisory Team. There are dozens of cultural groups that trace their ancestry and cultural heritage back to lands in and around Mesa Verde, Chaco, and the Four Corners. One of these groups is the Zuni. Today, they live in western New Mexico, about 150 miles west of Albuquerque. Our history states that our people were migrating through the Mesa Verde within the northern section of our ancestral lands. And uh, Mesa Verde is one of the stops, uh, Tiffany Rock, um, Hovenweep, and all the other places. Just looking at the moon in different phases, it's just a part of understanding of this being that is a part of the moon um, and the sun also, respectively, that they have a really important male and female relationship to each other. And this is Curtis. He's also Zuni. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Curtis Kwam. I work at the Al-Shawiyao Museum and the Heritage Center as the museum technician and cultural educator. And I also am part of the Zuni Cultural Resource Advisory Team. I think our ancestry knew a lot of this really, really important information that has been passed down, even down to planting. There's a practice in agriculture called moon phase gardening, and it has been practiced by people all over the world for thousands of years, including at Zuni. There's a whole understanding scientifically about when to plant uh, more root-bearing plants that grow into the ground. And there's others that grow up and out of the ground. There's different phases of the moon where that's a little bit more uh, favorable for, for your planting. This is something that's been written about in the Farmer's Almanac as recently as May of 2022. The idea is that water, both in the ground and in plants and seeds, is affected by the gravitational pull of the moon just like the ocean's tides, and that seeds absorb the most water when the moon is full and when the moon is new. And so, as Octavius mentioned, the ceremonies at Zuni occur during the full moon, and the preparation for these ceremonies begin during the new moon. So our ancestry, I would not doubt, had understood that, and that's why these ceremonies happen the way they happen. Since the Zuni have this strong connection to the moon, 
And since they are descendants of the people who inhabited places like Mesa Verde and Chimney Rock, I wondered if they have any traditions or ceremonies today that observe the lunar standstill. Pretty sure there was somebody out there that understood that, but uh, I've never really heard any observance of that in Zuni. Octavius told us in the previous episode about how the yearly ceremonial calendar and the responsibilities for watching and tracking the sun once belonged to the Zuni rain priests of the West. But that individual passed away before he could pass down the traditions to the next person in line. That role today belongs to the head rain priest at Zuni. And so perhaps something similar happened in regards to the lunar standstill observances from Chimney Rock. Maybe an individual or an entire religious society passed away before those traditions could be passed on. As Curtis explains, this is a complicated issue. It's not our own doing. We have learned that there was intervention by people that came in, settlers that came in, school teachers, and United States Army that helped limit and also end some of our ceremonial practices over time. The encouragement of ending those practices was highly, highly enforced to our people. Beginning in the mid-17th century, boarding schools were first established by Christian missionary groups of various denominations and were eventually provided funding by the U.S. government. These schools, called American Indian Boarding Schools or American Indian Residential Schools, operated with the primary goal of assimilating Native American children and youth into Euro-American culture forcibly separating them from and forbidding them from practicing their languages, religions, and cultures. Because of this policy, Zuni completely lost one of their medicinal groups in 1924. It wasn't until 1978, with the passing of the Indian Child Welfare Act, that indigenous parents gained the legal right to deny their children's placement in these schools. But these schools still existed until the 1990s. A lot of the really important ancestral wisdom that resides within these medicinal groups and other respective leadership and you know community leaders that were, are, were within our community at one point, they had this knowledge of keeping things going. When entire generations of a cultural group are removed from the community and kept from practicing their religion and traditions, certain parts of the culture will inevitably not survive. Especially when it comes to a long-term tradition like the 18.6-year cycle of the lunar standstill. The lunar standstill and this really important alignment happens in places like Chimney Rock. This is a really important area. Even though the Zuni may not currently observe the lunar standstill, their traditional pilgrimage routes still lead them to Chimney Rock and other areas in their ancestral homelands, where they continue to nurture their relationships with their ancestors. We can definitely, I think, say that there was certain leaders within our community that took care of a lot of knowledge and wisdom, and whether they came from these respective groups that were ended, again, by other outside influences, it might have been part of that wisdom that they understood. And today, we we carry on everything that has been given to us by our elders. So for the uh, lunar standstill at Chimney Rock, if you witness that area, it's like, wow, this is just like a special moment. And it's just a big part of who our understanding and this is how our ancestors lived. And through their prayers, through their devotion and their commitment, we're still here. It's 
So we'll honor and respect their their prayers and keep cheering them on. So far this season, we've heard the modern-day perspectives of the Zuni people from Curtis and Octavius. And in past seasons, we've heard the perspectives of individuals from Hopi, Laguna, Nambe, Ogeowinge, and Santa Ana Pueblos. And as we've mentioned before, the Mesa Verde region and the entire Southwest have been and continue to be areas of great cultural diversity. My name is uh, Ravis Henry, and what I just shared with you all is my formal introduction of who I am as a human being, as a Navajo, the person of the Dene tribe. And I belong to the Towering House clan, born for the Coyote Famous clan. I'm originally from a place called Alamo, New Mexico. That is where my grandmother is from. That's where my mother is from. That's where my umbilical cord is buried. That's where my roots are as an individual. But I was born and raised in the area of Chinle, Arizona, and raised mostly with my father's family in the area of Canyon de Chez. And this is where I come from, and this is how I identify myself as a young man of Canyon de Chez, a person of the canyon, and as I concluded, um, as a five-fingered spiritual being on this earth. Today, Canyon de Chez is also a unit of the National Park Service, known as Canyon de Chez National Monument. Located in northeastern Arizona, it is also in the heart of the Navajo Nation, and is actually entirely owned by the Navajo Tribal Trust of the Navajo Nation. About 40 Navajo families live within the park today, and it is the only National Park Service unit that is owned and cooperatively managed in this way. While the Navajo Nation is primarily located south of the Mesa Verde region today, the Navajo, who also refer to themselves as Diné, which translates to the people in their language, have historically moved across the Southwest on generations-long migrations through their ancestral homelands. Traditional homelands of the Navajo people actually go up into Colorado as well. And for the Navajo people, In our stories, we have a traditional homeland that's bounded by four sacred mountains. And they sit in the cardinal directions. So to the east, there is the sacred mountain um, called Cisnachina in our language. Today, that mountain is known in English as Mount Blanca, right outside of Alamosa, Colorado. The southern mountain is Solce. Today, this is known in English as Mount Taylor, near Grants, New Mexico. And then the third mountain to the west is Dokoosleed. And today, this is known in English as Mount Humphreys, or the San Francisco Peaks near Flagstaff, Arizona. And then the fourth mountain to the north is the Bensa. This is known in English as Mount Hesperus, near Durango, Colorado. 
And if you visited Mesa Verde, you may have seen this one. And that's the mountain that you can clearly see when you're there at Mesa Verde National Park. So with those traditional boundaries of our people, Mesa Verde definitely situates itself within uh, part of the traditional homelands of the Navajo people as well. The Navajo, just like the Zuni and countless other cultures around the world, have a deep connection to the cosmos. We do have our own stories about the sun, which is known as the sun barrier, Johona'e. And we have stories about the moon barrier, Ehona'e. Um, and these two are their deities, and they are beings that move across the sky, bringing light to our people. So they move, move across the sky holding a, a crystal that brings daylight to us during the day, and they bring us light in the nighttime through the moon. Most of the time during their usual cycles of movement throughout the months and years, the sun and moon operate on their own paths. But occasionally, when conditions are just right, their two paths will cross, resulting in what's known as either a solar or lunar eclipse. It's a very eerie feeling, very unnatural feeling. Again, this is Dr. Erica Ellingson. If you've seen a partial eclipse or been not under totality, um, I really recommend that the next chance you do have to see a total solar eclipse, you absolutely get in the track of totality. The writer Annie Dillard described the difference between seeing a partial eclipse and seeing a total eclipse as being the difference between riding in an airplane and falling out of an airplane. A lunar eclipse occurs when the Earth passes directly between the sun and moon in orbit. And this causes the moon to turn from its usual white or yellow color to a bright orange or red color. A solar eclipse occurs when the moon passes between the Earth and the sun, which causes the view of the sun to be either partly or totally obscured. So this is really a, a just really a, a fundamentally disturbing, upsetting, and in some ways exhilarating experience to have. And because the Navajos see the sun and the moon as being carried through the sky by divine beings, an eclipse is a very powerful occurrence. It's a very powerful spiritual interaction between deities. That's basically how we see it. The eclipse is um, actually a taboo. It's something that we don't, we don't look at. We don't do anything during an eclipse. And when there's a lunar eclipse or when there's a solar eclipse, for us Navajo people, um, we're told to be reverent. We're told to be humble. We can't look at it. We try not to be outside. We're, we're taught to be inside the home. We're taught to have a fire burning. We're taught to be singing protection songs and utilizing our sacred mountain tobaccos. And during this time, we are of extreme reverence as well to where we stay awake. We're not allowed to sleep, whether the lunar eclipse is at 4 o'clock in the morning or if a solar eclipse is happening right before sunset, whatever it is, we don't, we don't sleep. And we also don't eat or consume anything. We don't drink anything. And then we, there's a lot of other things we also don't do, but it's all out of reverence, understanding that there is a sacred occurrence that is happening between the sun barrier, between the sky, between the moon barrier, and between Mother Earth. And it's something that's so 
so powerful that it's beyond our comprehension as human beings, and it's not meant for us to be a part of. So when it comes to eclipses, it's a different story for, for us out here in Navajo land. Eclipses, for us anyways, occurred on their time and not ours, when the eclipse is done or when it's completed and taken its course, and everybody else can go back to their life. Modern technology such as photography, video, and social media present new challenges for the Navajo people as they work to avoid eclipses, not just during their time of occurrence, but after they are complete. It's an evolving understanding between our traditional way of life and the advances of technology and the world we live in, social media, etc. But for the most part, as Navajo people, I guess we, we have a lot of taboos. And there's a lot of, traditionally, there's a lot of fear in certain things. And seeing an eclipse, even if it's a photo after the fact, can still affect us. Just like how we feel traditionally, you know, our, our, our grandparents and their grandparents wouldn't like to be photographed because it's believed that our spirit is then captured and frozen in that image. And a part of us is stuck or becomes lost. So if you take a picture of the eclipse, that same thing, you know, you take part of that spirit, that sacred occurrence that's only supposed to be known between the earth, the sky, and the sun, the moon, and you're shaving it, and we're still looking at it afterwards. So that can still affect our people. Some Navajo folks and people of other cultures who have great reverence for eclipses have posted requests on social media that if you wish to share photos or videos of an eclipse, that you please include a content warning that precedes the actual eclipse imagery so that those who wish to avoid seeing these images can swipe past without being exposed to them. Yeah, it, it's definitely challenging in, in modern times to be a traditional individual while also trying to get along with everyone else. The Zuni also have a reverence for eclipses but they aren't necessarily a taboo like they are for the Navajo. Anytime that the eclipse happens, we're encouraged and told not to go outdoors. Again, that's Octavius. Because uh, according to uh, oral history, is, is when that happens, that a bad omen, bad things will be coming in. So people do not want to be a part of that. So they don't, they're encouraged not to observe the eclipse. So, and it still holds true today. You know, we're not in prayer or any uh, observance of what's happening. It's just an event, and we're encouraged not to um, even go outside during that time. We don't actively look out for those things because that hasn't been part of it. Because of what Jesus had mentioned, that this is something that we we rather not partake in, uh, because we know that this is a natural way of how things work. And that this, this really rare occurrence, we don't want it to stay within the natural life cycle thing. So we'll limit our activity and, and head indoors and let the natural process go through. And from there, once things pass, we resume our, our, our normal duties as, as we would. Just as eclipses happen occasionally during our lives today, they of course happen during the lives of the people at Mesa Verde in Chaco. One of these did happen right in the middle of downtown Chaco Canyon. And during the heyday, when we know that people were very attuned 
to things that were happening in the sky. Even though the people at Chaco didn't keep what European-descendant people might consider a written record of events like this, there does appear to be a sort of documentation of this eclipse in the canyon. There is some rock art in Chaco Canyon, which seems to show a disc with sort of flamey, curly things coming out of it. That's been postulated as being a depiction of what an eclipse sun might look like. Again, we don't know. What we do know in all of these are attempts to try to interpret rock art. We do know events happened. We know that people who cared about the sky witnessed these events. And then we simply say, are these possible ways in which they may have depicted that experience? Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and the Mesa Verde Association. This season is made possible through a grant from Colorado Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan of 2021. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, and mixed by Ken Petrosky. Our theme music is by David Morella. To learn more about the Zuni people, they invite you to come and learn directly from them at Zuni. Visit the Ashui Awan Museum and Heritage Center in Zuni, New Mexico to find exhibits and programs telling the story of the Zuni, past, present, and future. You can find information about celebrations and feast days that are open to the public, as well as current visitation guidelines by visiting ashui-museum.org. That's A-S-H-W-I-museum.org. For more information about the Navajo, visit discovernavajo.com. Be sure to check for current travel guidelines before planning a visit and be respectful to the areas within Navajo Nation that are open to the public. For more information about Chimney Rock National Monument, Canyon de Chelly National Monument, and Chaco Culture National Historical Park, you can find links to their respective websites on our website, mesaverdevoices.org. If you plan to visit Chaco, be sure to check their website for current travel conditions, as the park road is prone to washouts. For more information about dark skies at Mesa Verde National Park, visit nps.gov forward slash M-E-V-E. And follow Mesa Verde National Park on Facebook and Instagram for up-to-date information about park hours and road and trail openings. Again, you can find links to all these pages on our website, mesaverdevoices.org. Special thanks to Octavia Sayatua, Curtis Quam, Bravis Henry, and Dr. Erica Ellingson for sharing your wisdom and stories with us. And thank you to Spencer Burke, Betty Maya Foote, Garen Grayeyes, and Allison Bishop for help with additional research for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcast to stay up to date when new episodes release. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.